The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're going to finish John chapter 12 this morning. Sometimes John chapters 1 to 12 are called the book of signs. That's where Jesus does the, the seven miracles or seven signs. And chapters 13 through the end of the book, chapter 21, is called the, the book of passion, which focuses on the really the final events, the final week of Christ's life and his death on the cross. This morning, we are going to be looking at verses 32 all the way to verse 50. When Christ came, he came fulfilling the prophetic office. He came as a preacher. I once heard it said that God only has one son, and he made him a preacher. And from the very beginning, Jesus came preaching. When you look at his ministry, Matthew 4 opens up right after the temptation. Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He is and was the greatest preacher who has ever lived. And that was the primary focus of his ministry, is preaching. Everywhere he went, he preached. One time I went to Ukraine to teach in a Bible college there and to, to preach in the churches. And when I got off the plane, they were there waiting for me out in the parking lot. And they were saying in English, in their broken English, eat, sleep, preach, eat, sleep, preach. So I knew what I was going to be doing for, for the next week. I was going to be preaching. And that's what Jesus did. I, I know it might seem hyperbole, but everywhere he went, he preached. And yes, he healed. And yes, he did the miracles. But the miracles were called signs because they pointed you to the spiritual reality of his message. It wasn't just arbitrary miracles. He's, he's doing the miracles to say, look at me. Listen to my message. And what's fascinating, and this is something that we have to reckon with as Christians, is he preached his message, but the majority of the people who heard the message rejected it. So how, as, as Christians in the 21st century, do we deal with that? The, the Jewish audience that he preached to did not believe in him. And by and large today... The Jews, of whom their promises he fulfilled, by and large, do not believe in him. Why is that? And if somebody were to ask you, what is his message? What would you say? What is the message of our Lord? How would you define it? Well, this, this last section is a little tricky. Let me outline it for you so you can understand what's taking place. So really... 
verses 30 to 32 are Jesus's final evangelistic message. This is it. After this, there are no more public appeals. The Jews really don't understand what Jesus says, especially regarding the cross. And then Jesus, verses 35 to 36, points to the urgency of their belief. There is an urgency to their belief. Then, verses 37 to 43, is the apostles, the apostle John's explanation for why the Jews did not believe in Jesus. Why did they not believe? Well, John's going to answer that question for us. And then, verses 44 to 50, this is really something. I think what this is, is this is the Apostle John's explanation and summary of the entire message of Christ. There's nothing new stated in verses 44 to 50 that Jesus does not say somewhere else in his ministry. So it, it's, a, it's a summary. If you ever want to see, what, what did Jesus teach? What, what is the essence of his doctrine? John sums it up right here in verses 44 to 50. So let's begin by looking at his message up at verses 31 and, and 32. Remember, Jesus pointed to the fact that he was going to judge the world. He was going to cast out Satan from heaven. We looked at that last week. And then he talked about what, how he was going to do that, that he was going to do that through the cross. Look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Right next to verse 32 in the margin of your Bible, the cross, the cross. Jesus' message, especially here in the, in, the, in the final hours of his ministry, is focused on the cross. And he talks about himself being hoisted up, uh, a little preposition, oopso. It means to be uh, hoisted up into the air, almost like a pinata. Uh, the same word is used in John 3.14. And as Moses lifted up or hoisted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must, so must the Son of Man be lifted up or hoisted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you remember that scene in the wilderness where the people rebelled against Moses' leadership? And God sent fiery serpents into the camp, and they bit a lot of people. And they cried out for mercy from God, and God told Moses, he said, I want you to make a bronze serpent, and I want you to lift it up like a banner, like a flag. And if you look at that serpent, then you will be saved, and you will be cured of the snake bite. And Jesus is saying, I will be hoisted up. And, and they would understand what this means, that he would be crucified, that he would be laying down his life. They, they would understand what this means, but they wouldn't understand why. They didn't understand why. Jesus knew why. Remember, context. Jesus has come into Jerusalem riding the foal of a donkey as the reigning king. Everybody was yelling, you know, hail the king. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. He comes in as a king. He could very well establish his kingdom at that point. The only problem would be it would be a kingdom of one. 
because Christ's eternal kingdom cannot have sinners in it. And that's a big problem for you and me, isn't it? So in order for him to have a kingdom which includes you, he would have to die. And, and that's Jesus' point earlier in John 12. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Christ went to the cross willingly to lay down his life to bear fruit so that his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom with sinners who are saved by grace, who populate it and are in it. Now, John adds this comment. Look at verse 33. He, Jesus, said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he's saying, I'm going to be hoisted up, and he, by saying that, is explaining that he is going to die by means of crucifixion. And this perplexes the crowd. They don't understand why he's saying this. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law. And the law, the Torah, they're just referring to the Old Testament here. They're just saying, we've heard from the Old Testament that the Christ, that the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, they understood that the Son of Man was an apocalyptic figure, probably the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7. They understood that Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, but they don't understand why Jesus is saying that he must be lifted up why he must be crucified. Put yourself in the place of the Jews. They're thinking, okay, if you're the Messiah, you're coming to establish the kingdom, and that means you're going to get rid of these Roman occupiers. That means that you're going to lift us up. That means that you're going to uh, abolish evil. That means that you're going to do the things that we want. That's what they're thinking, and they're saying, what do you... What do you mean that you are going to be crucified? Doesn't even, the rabbi even told me in the synagogue, the rabbi, you know, he read to me uh, Psalm 89. Uh, look at Psalm 89 real quick. Turn to, to, to Psalm, excuse me, Psalm, yeah, no, it's Psalm 89. I was reading this in my Bible reading plan verse 4, Psalm 89, this is a reflection on God's covenant to David. Psalm 89, 4, he says, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then if you skip down to verse 34, God says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So they hear this. And you can turn back to, to John chapter 12. They hear this and they ask this question. How can, how can you say, you know, 
you this son of man, that you are going to be lifted up. And what they didn't understand is that the means of the crown would come through the cross. They didn't understand that the establishment of the kingdom would run through Isaiah 53. You remember Isaiah 53? That the servant must come and the servant must suffer on behalf of the people. But in reality, all of the Jewish system, going back all the way to the Passover, you all remember the Passover? Children of Israel were in Egypt, and what does God tell them to do? He says, you kill a lamb. You take its blood, you put it on the mantle in the doorpost of your door, and I will pass you over, and I will not take your oldest son. It was substitution from the very beginning. The entire sacrificial system, substitution, all of it pointing forward to the fact that there would be one day an ultimate substitute who would give his life for the sins of the people. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews says? Hebrews 9.12, he says, He, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And Jesus is the eternal high priest. Right now, in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ is making intercession for you by his blood. When I was over in Jerusalem, we took a group over there and we visited the Temple Institute there in Jerusalem. And what the Temple Institute is doing is they are preparing to build another temple. And they have all of the pieces of that new temple already laid out. They have a, a big menorah that they've, that they've uh, crafted. They have uh, a huge altar that as soon as the temple's built, they can put that altar there, and they can immediately begin to offer blood sacrifices on that altar. That's their plan for the future. You see, they, they don't understand the work of the Messiah, that he came on the cross to shed his blood so that sinners can be forgiven. That's the work of the cross. Do you understand the work of the cross? A lot of people claim to be Christians, and they say, yeah, Jesus did his part, and I'm trying to do my part. Jesus died on the cross, and I'm trying to prove that I'm worthy. You know, I'm trying to be a good person, trying to I'm, I'm trying to honor him because, because I'm a Christian, okay? Well, what Paul says is, is if you can be justified by works of the law, then Christ didn't have to die, Galatians 2.21. So either you're saved by Christ in his priesthood alone, or you're not saved at all. And, and that's, Jesus's, that's why Jesus is focusing here on the cross, He's saying, I must be lifted up. Uh, I must be uh, held up. And this is, this is the entrance into the kingdom. And the way that the kingdom will come about then is I will be resurrected 
from the dead as the first, first fruits of all those who will be eventually raised from the dead. And then I will ascend into heaven where I will reign. The Davidic throne begins when Christ ascended into heaven and began reigning at the right hand of God the Father. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign, and he is reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So yes, it is Psalm 89. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic promise. He is reigning. It's just not Revelation 21 and 22 yet. He's reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Now, what Jesus says next, and I want you to write next to verse 35 in the margin, is that there is an urgency, right? The urgency. Whenever you talk about spiritual things and things of the Holy Spirit of God, there is an urgency to respond. There's an urgency. If the Holy Spirit convicts you regarding sin, there is an urgency to confess it and to repent. If the Holy Spirit convicts you to share the gospel with somebody, then there is an urgency to carry out in obedience uh, that prompting that we are to walk by the Spirit. There is always an urgency to respond in spiritual things. So they're asking this question about the Son of Man. They're asking this question about being lifted up. Jesus just says, look, none of, that, none of those questions are really relevant right now. Verse 35, he said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. That word little is micron, where we get our word micro. I mean, literally, Jesus is going to be with him not even a, a, a week. And he says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. The picture that Jesus paints is of a journey. Have you ever been walking and it's getting close to dusk? The sun's going down. The shadows are getting longer. And you don't have a flashlight. So the, the idea is, is you want to get where you're going quickly while you have the light. That's the, the image that Jesus is using. You do not want to be walking in the darkness. When I was in the Marine Corps, they used to do this event for the officers called night land navigation, that they would put you on a, a terrain course, and they would give you grid coordinates. They would give you a map and a compass, no flashlight, and they would say, you need to go find these points on the terrain at night, you, you pray that there's a moon, you know, and there's, there's a loom, and, uh, and, and good luck. Well, for, for final light, night land nav, some sadistic person uh, put the points on this, uh, on this area of terrain that had a creek bed right in the middle of it. And all the points would basically crisscross. So you would have one point on one side, then you would have a point on the other. And as you're walking... You don't, you can't see where you're going. You, the, the loom was, was 
the, the, it was cloudy. You could hardly see. You could hardly see the hand in front of your face. The way that you knew that you were getting close to the creek bed is that you would listen for the screams of the other lieutenants as they fell down the embankment into the creek. And as the splashes got louder and louder, you would think, okay, I need to walk slower now. The point being, you, you don't want to be walking in the darkness. You need the light. And spiritually speaking, this is a spiritual metaphor, obviously. You, you take, what does it mean spiritually? Who's the light? Jesus is the light. Isn't that clear from studying the Gospel of John John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light, in terms of reference to Christ, it, it embodies spiritual truth, ethical righteousness, the knowledge of God, all of that is found in Christ. Normally, light refers to knowledge. Think about the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a group of philosophers and humanists who said, we can, through knowledge, navigate this world without God. That's what the Enlightenment was. They said, we have knowledge so we can figure things out, when in reality, they deceive themselves. But light is normally associated with knowledge of truth. And Jesus says, I am the light. So come to me quickly while the light is here. It, I'm here for a little while. There is an urgency. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. You have this split here moment to make a decision. And once that moment is passed, it's gone. The night is here. Night represents judgment. Night represents the point where it's too late. Night represents that threshold in which there's no return. If you're ever in Dallas, next time you're in Dallas, drive around North Dallas there in the Park Cities, Highland Park area. There's a church called Park Cities Baptist Church. Big, big, classic uh, sanctuary. And steeple, probably seven, eight stories tall. And at the base of the steeple, all four sides, it says, night cometh. Night cometh. You can see it from all the way from downtown. Night is coming. The time is short. Christ is returning. And then there is no going back. Perhaps the night is coming on your life. You don't know the day or the hour in which the Lord will take you home. So there is a pressing need. There's always a pressing need. There's always an urgency to get right with God. Always. In, in Luke 16, Jesus made this astounding statement. He says the kingdom of God is taken by force, and people are always pressing into it. There's, there's an urgent need to press into the kingdom that it's here, and I need to close with Christ quickly. I need to, to, to get things right. And those who enter the kingdom feel that urgency. Do you remember when you became a Christian? And, and it was 
this, this existential crisis came over me when I became a believer. And I knew if, that I needed right in that moment to trust Christ and to not put it off. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying there is an urgency to come to the light. And he says, if you don't do this, you will be overtaken by the darkness. The word for overtaken, katalambano, it's the same word used in John 1, 5, where John says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is the light. He's shown in the darkness. The darkness can't overcome Jesus, but the darkness can overcome you. The light will never overcome Jesus. He's the light of the world. But if you don't close with Christ, the darkness will overcome you, is what Jesus is saying. Have you ever wondered, watch these documentaries about the Holocaust? Have you ever wondered, how did somebody who was raised as a Lutheran end up running a concentration camp? How did somebody born in America end up being an abortion doctor, a Kermit Gosnell? How did somebody end up being a Hollywood producer or a Hollywood comedian, and then it coming out that there's this long line of assaults on women? How do you end up as a governor of a state and veto a 12-week heartbeat bill? How do you get to that point? It's because you are walking in darkness and you do not know where you are going. And when you are walking in darkness, it is really easy to get off course. Because of our human depravity, Yes, we have a conscience, but when you reject your conscience and you sear your conscience and you reject God and you reject Christ, your conscience becomes more and more wobbly and you veer more and more off course. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 4.18, describing the unbeliever. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of of heart. They do not have the internal means to correct their descent. When you reject God, you descend. You don't you, you the the there's a myth of neutrality that people are just, you know, functioning at the New York Times in this level of neutrality. No, 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 no. You're always moving closer to God or further away from God. And the more you walk in darkness, the longer you walk in darkness, the longer you drift away from God. And that's how you can be raised a Lutheran, Lutheran and end up running a concentration camp. It's a lot of slow steps further and further into the darkness. So Jesus says, verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He says, look to me, believe in me, 
That means trust me in faith. Trust me with all of who you are. Follow me. And then he says, look at the result. The last phrase is the result. That you may become the sons of light. A son reflects the attributes and character qualities of his parent, right? You know, uh, John was called, uh, James and John were called the what? Sons of thunder. They reflected thunder. Uh, You reflect the attributes of your parents. So Jesus says, look, you believe in me. You come and trust me. You become the son of light, where now you start to look like light. Remember what Jesus said? You are the what? Light of the world. Where when you become a believer, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.16, you are given the mind of Christ. You are given the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.25, you begin to live by the Spirit. You begin to discern spiritual things. You begin to understand your Bible. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So that's the transformation of Christianity, is that you now become a son of light, where you have an internal homing beacon that now reflects the light of who Christ is and can interpret his light, understand his light, live out his light in the world. That's what being a son of light is all about, that your life changes and you begin to represent Christ. You begin to look like Christ, and you become a little light. Now, here's the scary thing. End of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That's it. That's the curtain call. That's the message. There's no more. There's no more pleading. There's there's no more explanation. There's no more public signs. This is it. What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you believe in Jesus or will you reject Jesus? So this probably took place, some scholars say, on, on Tuesday during the Passion Week and Jesus departs, and he hides himself from the public. So that's Jesus' last sermon, is a statement about the cross and an urgency to believe in him. Now, his message is rejected, and I want you to write next to verse 37, the rejection, the rejection. Now, John is writing. So John is writing. Remember, he's writing this gospel years and years, maybe 40, 50 years after the fact. And John is reflecting in in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is his reflection. He says, verse 37, though he had so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Isn't that interesting? You know, you would think that you see a miracle man raising Lazarus from the dead, healing a man born blind, healing a paralytic by the pool of Bethesda. You think that you would see all these things and and people would believe. Oh, if they would only just see Jesus do these works, they would believe. They didn't believe. 
And John gives three reasons. He gives us three explanations for why they didn't believe. The first is prophecy. He says the first reason is, is because it was prophesied that they wouldn't believe in him. So it's actually a proof that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Look at verse 38. He says, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, they didn't believe in him because it needed to be fulfilled by the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, Lord, who has believed in the message? I'm looking. I don't see anybody. I don't see someone that's believed. It's been rejected. That's, that's what Isaiah is saying will happen when the Messiah comes. And if you look at the ministry of Christ, that's what happened. He had huge crowds at the beginning. People started following him because they saw the signs. And then you remember John chapter 6, you know, they said, Jesus, we like this whole bread thing, the bread and fish thing. Can you just keep doing this? And Jesus says, look, you're just following me because you want bread. You're just following me because in your flesh you want an earthly kingdom. You're not following me because you believe in me as the Messiah. And when he said those things, uh, John says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That was his public ministry. Many turned back and no longer walked with him. Remember, Jesus asked the 12, he said, are you going to go away too? Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So it's not that everybody rejected Christ. There were people, obviously. His, there were the, the remnant who believed. There were the sheep that he called that followed. But by and large, the majority rejected him. And it was all in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that the majority of his people of Israel would reject him. Second reason that John gives for why Jesus reject, was rejected is he points to the sovereignty of God. And he said, God removed his grace. God removed his hand of grace as an act of divine judgment upon Israel and their lack of belief and their rejection. Look at verse 39. John says, therefore, they could not believe. They could not believe. And you're, and you're saying, okay, why couldn't they believe? For again, Isaiah said, verse 40, this is a startling verse. Look at verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Wow. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Now, these are people, question, are you born seen or are you born spiritually blind? You're born spiritually blind. Are you born with a heart of flesh or are you born naturally with a heart of stone? Heart of stone. So they already have blind eyes. They already have hard hearts. But they have rejected our Lord again and again and again. And, and what God does in order to harden someone's heart more, in order for them to be given over to more, more blindness, all God has to do is remove his hand. That's all God has to do. Is he just simply says, okay, you want to go that way? 
I am removing my hand of restraint. You go. And your heart becomes more hardened and you become more blind. And God, in his sovereignty, has the prerogative to do that. God does not have to extend saving grace like he did to the Apostle Paul to every person. In our American sense of democracy and self-will butts up against that, doesn't it? You know, how can God say, I will harden, harden their heart and I will cause them to be blind? Well, that's justice. I once, I once saw R.C. Sproul do this. He, he was explaining this point, and he drew a big circle. You know, he used to write on these chalkboards, you know. And he drew a big circle on the chalkboard. And in the middle of that circle, he wrote justice. And then he asked the question, what does a sinner who rejects God deserve? What is justice for the sinner who rejects God? Judgment and hell. That's justice. Now, then he draws mercy and grace outside the circle. And he says, is it, is grace justice or is it grace? It's grace. God has the prerogative to extend grace and mercy to whomever he will. But that's not justice. Justice is giving you what you deserve. Mercy is giving you what you don't deserve. And it's God, God's prerogative to give mercy and grace to whomever he will. And in this case, it was God's decision. He said that the rulers of Israel, the leaders, the Pharisees, uh, the, the elites, they rejected the Messiah. I will give them over to their sin. And they will be given over to blindness and hardness of heart. Yet, verse 41. This is such a mind-blowing verse. This is one of those nursing home verses that you could just meditate while you're dribbling over your food in the, you know, in the big common area. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of who? Christ. What's he talking about? I find this absolutely fascinating. Isaiah 6, you remember the vision. Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of heaven where he sees the cherubim, the seraphim. Everybody is worshiping God. And they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the holy is used as a superlative to emphasize the absolute holiness of God. And when Isaiah sees that vision, he says, woe is me, because it is a magnificent vision of God. And what John is saying here by the power of the Holy Spirit is that when Isaiah saw that vision, he was looking at the pre-incarnate Christ, the holiness of Christ. So he's putting this here because he's saying just because the leaders of Israel rejected him. It, it, it doesn't have anything to do with his refulgent glory and holiness. You know, we have seen his glory. We have seen uh, 
everything manifested the Father, full of grace and truth, John says in the prologue. They saw his glory. And so the, the benchmark of true Christianity is that you get to this point where you are infatuated with Christ, that you are ravished by Christ. His glory, you can't get enough of Christ. That you see him, that you see his character as, as he reflects the Father. Third reason why they didn't believe in him is selfishness. Selfishness. They, they cared more about themselves than they cared about Christ and his kingdom. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Pay attention here. This is, this is a little perplexing, but you have to pay attention to the context in order to see the result. They did not confess it so that they, may not, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So earlier you had people who outright rejected Christ. They didn't listen to the message. Then you have this other group of people. And clearly they have some type of intellectual faith in Jesus. But he says that they are afraid of the authorities and they love their own glory more than they love the glory of God. So are you asking the right question here? The right question that you should be asking is, are these people saved? Was that what you were asking? Are these people truly believers? Well, let me tell you what Jesus says, Luke 12, 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, what's the conclusion? Interpreting Scripture with Scripture. These people aren't true believers. Unless you're willing to confess the Lord, his lordship over your life, you're not a true Christian. And I grew up in Dallas where it was just so materialistic. And so many people at some point, claimed the name of Christ, but when they got to college, to the keg parties, it was, hey, uh, you know, I'm kind of keeping that on the DL. I'm not really waving that flag anymore. The martyrs, the mark of the martyrs in the, in the Roman Empire is if you were, this is later on, you know, late 200s, early 300s, before Constantine, um, they would give you an opportunity to recant. They'd say, we're going to throw you to the lions in the Colosseum unless you recant. So you have that opportunity up until the very, as sometimes as they would be walking to the lions, the authorities would be pleading with them, with, with young women, even pregnant women. Recant. You don't have to do this. You don't have to confess Jesus as Lord. You don't have to go through with this. And, and the martyr said, yes, I do. 
because I cannot recant my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the mark of the true Christian. It's not just that you believe in the head, but that you believe in the heart and that you're willing to confess him as your Lord. So the, the, these Jews, they were obsessed with their own glory, with their own prestige. And as long as, as long as you're there, you will never come into the kingdom. Jesus says, this is Jesus, Jesus 5, uh, John 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So as long as you're your own glory hound, chasing your own glory, chasing your own prestige, you will not believe in Christ in the heart. Now, this is why I think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus coming forward at Jesus' burial was so important. They crossed over. They said, I'm willing now to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's evidence of, of their conversion. So some did cross over, right? Paul was one of those guys that crossed over and was willing to confess Christ as Lord. But are you willing to do that? College students, where are you? Are you willing to do that? Where everybody on campus is waving a rainbow flag. Are you willing to say, Jesus is my Lord, and though none go with me, I still will follow? Lastly and finally is the summary of the message. And, and this is a great little place to return to as you're thinking about, okay, what did Jesus preach? What did he say? This is the message. And I, I broke this up in, into uh, five parts. So let me give those, these five parts to his message to you right next to verse 44. So these are subpoints. Exclusivity. Exclusivity. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus Christ is the only son of God who was sent into the world. If you want to look at different verses where this is taught earlier, in John 1.51, John 3.16, 5.17, Jesus is the only son of God. He's God's one plan of salvation. So that Jesus can say, John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Sometimes I, I heard it said growing up that all the religions of the world are like the different parts of an elephant. And we're all just blindfolded and we're all just filling the different parts of, of the same elephant. You know, there, it's, it's all one path to God. And we're all just filling different parts. We think that they're different, but it's, but it's all the same. You know, there's many roads that go to heaven. You have your way, and I have my way. And if you think that, then you don't understand Christianity. Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the Father's representative. I, I'm the only one sent from God. I am the Christ. And our world today, you know, Apple's running these commercials about Mother Earth, that, that, that Earth is personified. Um, pagan deities are there right and left, but there is only one way. 
and it's Christ and him crucified. Second part of his message, verse 45, is epiphany. Now, epiphany, I know that's a fancy word. Epiphany just means the manifestation of a deity. Verse 45 says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. If you want to understand who God is, all you have to do is look at Christ. John 1.18, John 8.19, John 10.38. In the Old Testament, there was great concern about understanding the character of God, about seeing God, knowing God. Remember Moses, God took him on uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and put him in the cleft of the rock, and God put his hand over the cleft, covered it up, and God passed. You remember Elijah. Elijah, God took to the same mountain, put on a cave, and there was a, a flash of fire, and it said the presence of God was not in the fire. There was an earthquake, and the presence of God was not in the earthquake, but then there was a still small whisper, and the presence of God was in, in the whisper. But even then, Elijah covered his eyes that he might not glimpse the full-on presence of God. But we, this is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding, gazing at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we see the character of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a wonderful thing to reflect on, to meditate on, that you can know God, that you can know God fully, you can know his character as you look at Christ. Third, enlightenment. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And again, we've already seen this in, in verse 35, but it's also seen throughout John's gospel in the prologue, John 1, 4, 1, 5, 1, 9, uh, chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 5. And the light represents the truth. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Peter said that you've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is the wonder of the Christian life, and I never get over it. When I go to places like Disney or Six Flags, or I probably don't go to Disney anymore, but um, uh, public areas, when I go to the grocery store, you look around and, and you just think about all the worldviews that are reflected. And, and I think about the fact how many of these people are walking in darkness. But yet, do, what do I know? I have the light. God in his grace has given me the knowledge of himself, the knowledge of his word, the knowledge of his truth. And I am walking in the light. There's nothing better. I wouldn't trade that for all the money in the world. Uh, you, there's no better bargain than to have the light. That is the Christian life. You know where you are going. Fine, take me home. Take my life. I'm going to glory. And one day I will be resurrected from the dead where I will dwell on a new heaven, new earth with my Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. I know the truth. And the truth sets you free. Fourth is judgment, verse 47 and 48. 
If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The one that I have, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus taught about a final judgment again and again and again. You can see this in John 3, 17, 5, 24, 5, 45 to 47, John 8, 15, 16, and 31. Again and again, Jesus proclaimed the reality of a judgment. And like I explained last week, you will be judged on the basis of what you do with Jesus Christ. What you think about Jesus Christ has infinite has an infinite amount to say about you and nothing about Christ. Doesn't really matter what you think about Christ in terms of who he is. But it matters for you and your eternal resting place with God. Um, if you reject Christ, Jesus says, you will be judged. You will be judged. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 5, 24. So, there is a coming judgment, and you will be judged on the basis of whether or not you have received Christ. And if you do, you've passed from death to life. And then, fifth and finally, is revelation. That Jesus is the prophet that was prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. That he brings the final revelation. His apostles close out the canon of the New Testament. That under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they speak God's word. Verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And again and again and again, Jesus says that he spoke the words that his Father gave him. John 3, 11, 7, 17, 8, 26, verse 28, and 38. So, and, and Jesus will tell his disciples that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit will lead them into all truth. So this final revelation is given to us by Christ and his apostles, not some angel named Moroni, like the Mormons claim. It's Christ and his apostles that were led into the truth. So that's the basic message. You, you can sum it up with those five points. That's th these are wonderful truths to reflect on, that Christ has given us the final revelation of God in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is sent by God as his representative to make an atonement for sinners, that you will be judged with what you do with this message that those who come to Christ are enlightened so that they have the mind of Christ. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They understand truth. They are able to navigate in this world ethically, morally, in the knowledge of God. In that, in seeing Christ, and this is the highest point, that you can know God and give him glory in the person of Christ. Praise be to God. Christ is the representative of the Father. And from his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Heavenly Father, Lord, 
we thank you for this final message, this final evangelistic message and the urgency of this message and the urgency of this message for the world that you have spoken, that it is daytime now, but night is coming. Night is coming when it will be too late. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us an urgency to respond to the truth, that we would trust in you alone as our Lord and Savior, that we would proclaim this message, that we would proclaim that the Bible is your word, that Jesus Christ is your only son, that he is the only way, that the cross and the blood of Christ is the only gateway into heaven, and that there will be a final judgment on the last day. But if you come to Christ, you will be enlightened. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.